I want to say a word about last week's sermon, clarifying word before we get into today's text, which is going to be Romans 6, 12 through 23. Someone asked me uh, last week if I was teaching that baptism is necessary for salvation. And at first I thought he was joking. Um, But as I came to think about it, I could see where the question came from and how someone might wonder And so I want to talk about that just a little bit. The sermon last week was not meant to be in any way a comprehensive treatment of baptism. Uh, The fact is that neither the passage nor the sermon is really about baptism. It's about living a new life. So I was working within the text and didn't say everything that could be said about baptism or even everything that should be said. So it's important to remember in Romans chapter 6, that Paul is taking for granted that a person who is baptized is one who has come over to God's side through faith in his son, Jesus. So when Paul speaks of baptism, his readers knew that he was using a kind of shorthand in which baptism represents faith in the dying and rising Jesus as Lord. Justification with God uh, represents conversion of the sinner. But in our day, we can't assume what Paul and his readers took for granted. And I think for two reasons. One is that many people who have genuinely believed in Jesus, genuinely believed in him and come over to his side, have not been baptized. Either because they were never taught about baptism or because they've been wrongly taught that baptism is inconsequential. That's an option. You can take or leave. It's up to you. That is a grave distortion of biblical teaching. But there's a second and I think almost opposite reason why we can't take for granted that the baptized person who's one who has come over to Jesus' side. uh, uh, And and I think for two reasons about that too. But, But in the first case, people have come over to God who have not been baptized. But in the second case, people have been baptized who haven't come over to God. They went through a ritual because someone told them they should or in the case of infants, because someone put them through it. But they have never confessed with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, never believed in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. They've never made the faith their own. So people who have been baptized but haven't believed in Jesus, they fall into two camps. Some of them, for some of them, baptism meant nothing. They've never even thought about it. And some of them don't even know they've been baptized. Over the years, I've met quite a few people who've said to me, well, I don't know if I was baptized or not. But there are also people who have been baptized, who haven't come over to God's side, and are counting on the ritual to get them into heaven, even though they're not serving the God of heaven and have no intention of doing so. They think that baptism can do for them what only Jesus Christ can do. Forgive them, justify them, and reconcile them to God. So just in case we've misunderstood, I want to be clear. Baptism has no inherent ability to save you. Jesus does. Baptism is meaningful, and that word is not strong enough. It is powerful, it is consequential, it's important for people who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's meaningless for people who don't. Oh, and one last thing, and then we're going to move on. 
we mustn't think that Christ plus baptism equals salvation. As if baptism is the final digit in some religious code that unlocks heaven for us. And unless you input all the numbers in the right order, heaven won't open. Salvation's not the combination to a lock. You know, first you repent of your sins, second you believe in Jesus, third you get baptized. Salvation is not achieved by the steps we take, but the death Jesus died and the life he lives. Baptism's not a step, it's an expression, it's a proclamation even, that Jesus is Lord. In fact, that Jesus is your Lord. All right, I hope that clarifies things. If you want to think through that further with, with me, give me a call, and we'll sit down and do that. But now to the rest of the chapter. Um, I'm not going to read it all, but I am going to read verses 13 through 19. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. That word instruments could be translated weapons. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Again, weapons of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. That's that same word we saw last week, and you could translate it, are you nuts? Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slave to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. Just as you need to offer the parts of your body, in, as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. If the theme of last week's text, Romans 6, 1 through 11, is, as I suggested, be who you are, the theme of this text is be whose you are. I titled last week's sermon with a song lyric from Hall and Oates, Be Who You Are. This week, I have another one from about the same period, but this one from The Who. And you know, I could go on and on and on. So I know all these songs. Actually, this song from The Who came out kind of after my time. So, seriously, in, 19, <laughs> in 1976, disco came out. And I publicly protested in the streets. I turned off my radio. I'm not listening to that stuff. I can't stand disco music. Well, this song came out after that, but... It was titled, Who Are You? You know the lyric, who are you? The chorus, who, 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 who? And then do you really want to know? If you wanted to put the theme of Romans 6, 12 to 23 into question form, sort of like Jeopardy, that chorus would be a pretty good way of doing it. Only once again, I'd suggest a minor change in wording. Instead of who are you, a better question to sum up the text would be, Whose are you? Paul thinks it's vitally important for God's people in Rome to remember 
whose they are. And it's also vitally important for God's people in Coldwater. If you didn't understand your baptism, didn't really know what it was all about, or if you've mistakenly thought that believing in Jesus is just a way to get to heaven someday when you die, you may not know how to answer the question, whose are you? What happened when you came to Jesus and put your faith in him was bigger than you could possibly realize. Coming to Jesus is not merely a religious experience. It is a life-altering transition. Coming to Jesus is like being adopted into a new family. It's like coming to work for a new employer. It's like becoming a citizen of a new country. Coming to Jesus changed your identity. You're no longer the old person living in sin and away from God, but a new person in Christ living in his kingdom. Coming to Jesus changes your purpose. You no longer live to please yourself, but live to please your Lord. It changes accountability. You now answer to someone beside yourself. You belong to another. And it even begins to change the way you think and talk and act. Do you remember where you were working when you first came to confess Jesus as Lord? And for some of you, it was a long time ago. For some of you, maybe it's just a week or two ago. But let's say you were working in a bakery. You probably got up after the next day, after you, you came to Christ, you trusted in him. You probably got up and went to the bakery the next day and the day after that, just like you always had. And the bakery probably still gave you a paycheck, but something changed. You no longer worked directly for the bakery. You worked for Jesus. You still made bread and donuts, and if anything, you made better bread and donuts. But you'd begun working for a different employer. It's not that the bakery came under new management. You did. Whose are you? The bakery's? No. Jesus's. And that's true whether you work at school or the bank or the factory or wherever. And it's not just your work life that suddenly came under his authority. So did your home life, your recreational life, your leisure life, your moral life. See, this is what's hard for people to understand. Believing in the dying and rising Jesus as Lord is not a religious act as such. It's a life-encompassing act. You can't put walls around it and box it in. You can't put a steeple on it and label it religious. If you believed in Jesus as expressed in your baptism that Paul wrote about earlier in the chapter, you stopped being your own person and became his person, his operative, his agent. You are not your own, as Paul says elsewhere. And you're not the devil's either. Whose are you? You are Jesus's. And in verse 12 through 23, Paul tells you to act like it. There are three keys in this passage <clears throat> that can help us act like it. Knowledge, what we know in our heads. Talked about that a little last week. Faith, what we believe in our hearts. What we regard as true, what we believe in our hearts. And action, what we do with our bodies. When I was a boy, my older brother Kevin taught me how to mix vinegar and baking soda to, to make an explosive combination. So, you know, you know what happens, right? Uh, you mix baking soda, sodium bicarbonate, 
with vinegar, and it produces, through chemical reaction, carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide expands rapidly. It's a gas that expands rapidly. Well, Kevin and I learned that if you put a little baking soda in an old-fashioned pill bottle, do you remember the kind of the little pop-off tops? If you put baking soda into a pill bottle, pour it in vinegar, snap the top on really quickly, and shook it, then the top would shoot off like a bullet. There was a stain on my parents' ceiling, which came back no matter how often you painted over it, which is a testimony to the power of science. And a reminder in my household, don't you ever do that again. <laughs> Likewise, if you combine knowledge, what we know, know in our heads, with faith, what we believe in our hearts, and shake it up with a little action, things are going to happen. Prayers are going to be answered. A witness to Christ will be proclaimed. Your inner life will be changed. Hope will grow. This is the kind of Christian life we read about in the Bible and in the biographies of famous saints. It's a powerful life where things happen and God shows up and his kingdom comes. Combine sodium bicarbonate and vinegar, you get a chemical reaction. Combine what we know in God's word with what we believe in our hearts and what we do in our bodies and we get a spiritual reaction. So what do we know? We know, and this is last week's text, that we died to sin. That's chapter 6, verse 4. We know our old self was crucified with Christ, Romans 6, verse 6. And based on what we know, we believe. So verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. In Christ Jesus. Counting yourself dead to sin takes what we know and believes on it in our heart. It's an act of faith. Now, please understand, counting yourself dead to sin is not the same thing as counting yourself dead to temptation. A lot of people get this mixed up. If you believe you're dead to temptation, you're in for a, a shock. Being dead to sin is not about how you feel but about who and whose you are. It's not about feelings, it's about identity. Being dead to sin means that sin is not your master anymore. Your position has been altered by your connection to Christ in his death and resurrection. You have come out of a far country and entered his kingdom. You're a new person with new resources, serving a new master, and you must learn to regard yourself as such. When you believe in Jesus, and I know if you, you can go downtown and ask people, do you believe in Jesus? Almost everybody will say yes. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. But if you believe in Jesus so that you confess him to be your Lord, God regards you differently than he did before. On the basis of your faith in Jesus, he regards you as one of his, a resident of his kingdom. He accepts you. The biblical way of putting it, as we've seen in the first three chapters, is he justifies you. Paul stated it this way in chapter 4 and then repeated it again and again. God credits righteousness or righteous status to you. The word Paul used there in chapter 4, which the NIV translated as credit over and over again, is the same word he uses here where the NIV translates it as count. 
What God does for us pertaining to our acceptance, he regards us as righteous. We're called to do for ourselves pertaining to our choices. We regard our life as our old life is over. Score settled, debt paid, situation changed, and our new life is having begun. Volume one closed with the death of our former self. And volume two opened with a new self that belongs to God and stands in grace, not in debt. And, and that is true because of the real connection faith establishes to the dying and rising Christ. It's true, and we must count it as true. Imagine you owe the hospital an enormous amount of money. Some of you probably do. And there's no way for you to pay it. So the hospital, after a while, hands the bill over to an agency, and they call you. And they call you every day, and they call you several times a day. They tell you that you must pay that bill or else. They, tell you, they don't tell you what the or else is, but they tell you, you better pay it or else. They tell you to sell your belongings so that you can make payments. You have to do this. They tell you to get money from your friends and relatives, and they just keep calling. Then some wealthy patron goes to the hospital on your behalf, negotiates a settlement, quite apart from anything you know, negotiates a settlement and pays your bill. He then calls you and tells you what he's done and assures you that the hospital has dropped its claim against you. It's marked your bill paid in full. And you think, oh, what a relief. I am so glad this is finally over. And then first thing next morning, bright and early, the phone rings, and it's the collection agency. And they tell you, you must pay that bill or else. They tell you to sell your belongings and make payments. They tell you to get the money from your friends and relatives. What are you going to do? Are you going to do what they tell you to do? No. Why? Because your situation has changed. You are no longer under their thumb. They have no power over you. Yes, you hang up. You'd be foolish to go on making payments to them, and it doesn't matter how much they whine or yell or how often they call or what threats they make. That's like what Paul's saying here. Sin's power over you has ended. You must count on it. God's power over you has begun. You must rely on it, on the resources of God and his kingdom. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now let me repeat. Sin's power over you has ended. Sin's power in you, however, is another matter as we'll see next week when we get to chapter 7. Very important to us. But don't worry, God has the resources we need to deal with that too. So, we know the truth of what God has done in Christ. We know in our heads what God has done in Christ, what he's told us about through the prophets and apostles, knowledge. We believe in our hearts what he has done applies to us, faith. And so on the basis of what God has done and in the light of what we believe, we act with our bodies. So knowledge, faith, action. How do we act? What do we, what do we do? Just as we used to offer the parts of our body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, 
that, let me just stop there. If you come on Wednesday night to go deep, there's so much in this text that I'm just bouncing over real quickly. But that ever-increasing wickedness, how the NIV translates it, is literally lawlessness unto lawlessness. And, and I think the idea is that we become more and more a law to ourselves. I become my own God. Just as that used to be the case, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. So here's the thing. We don't merely stop sinning. We start obeying. We get involved in what God is doing around us. We radically alter our lives. Instead of serving evil, instead of serving ourselves, we go all in and we serve the Lord. This is a mistake people make. Instead of getting busy serving God, they just try not to serve sin. They try to let go of bad habits without grasping onto good ones. Unlike the Roman Christians, they don't wholeheartedly obey the teaching to which they were entrusted. And that, by the way, is a really interesting phrase. Paul, over and over again in the letters, talks about the teaching that's entrusted to you. Here he talks about you being entrusted to the teaching. Some people have knowledge. Okay? And some people have almost encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible. They just know it so well. And they're trying to have faith, which for some reason keeps getting harder and harder, but they don't have action. They don't do anything. Then they wonder why Christianity isn't working for them. Why isn't God doing anything for me? They wonder why they have so little ability to resist sin. They wonder why they have no peace. They hear sermons about being new people and they assume it's all just a metaphor and an exaggerated one at that because they're not seeing any newness in their lives. Do you want to see the reality of God's power in your life? Then you need to know the facts in your head, believe the truth in your heart, and live it out in your bodies. One way of knowing the facts in your head is to get into the habit of regular Bible reading. It is hugely helpful. It has been the most uh, important, life-changing discipline for me in my life. Read the Bible. If you say, I don't understand the Bible, don't use that as an excuse not to be in it. There are things you can do that will help you understand the Bible. And talk to me. I'll help you with it. I'd love to help you with it. Another thing you can do is to meet with a few people to talk about what you've read, what you've been thinking about in the Bible. Join one of LCC's small groups. I was with somebody this week who said, the most important thing I do on Sunday is go to small group. Just be with my small group. It's been life-changing for me. So get involved in a small group or come to Go Deep or family ministry or youth group on Wednesday night. Know the facts. Get to know them well. But knowledge alone will not produce a spiritual reaction. There must also be faith. If you don't believe, then I would suggest that you talk to God about it. Well, if I don't believe, how am I going to talk to God about it? Even if you're not sure he's there, talk to him about it. Ask him to help you believe the truth, whatever it might be. To believe what's real. 
If you have believed, but you keep falling into unbelief, ask God to reveal any attitudes or behaviors or commitments in your life that underlie that pattern. There's a reason for it. Ask him to show it to you. You may need to talk and pray with another Christian brother or sister about that. If I can help, I'd be glad to. And finally, start acting on the changes in your situation by actively serving God. Get busy. Remember how the vinegar and baking soda gets really energized when you shake them up? You may need to be shaken. You know what I see is that most of us spend all our time trying not to be shaken by anything. We pursue this little, nice, comfortable life rather than a kingdom of God all in life of obedience and challenge and risk. It's no wonder nothing's happening. Dare to ask God how you can serve him and then keep asking and watch for how he's going to answer. If nothing comes to mind, find a trusted Christian friend or one of our ministry staff or elders and ask for counsel and prayer. Remember whose you are and go all out for God. Let's pray. Lord, would you apply this to us in in ways that are going to make a difference? In fact, Lord, what you want to speak to us, don't let us get away from. I ask you to do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.